Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Now, a few weeks ago, I can't even keep it all straight because it didn't, uh, I've been uh, leaning a lot for the last couple of years as I prepare my messages on Google Docs, and they usually... It, it's usually well-ordered when I open that up, and I think it's an issue with my computer starting. Well, it's not starting. It's slowly been fizzling for a couple of years now, but I just keep trying to squeeze the last bit of usefulness out of it. So I can't remember when I started this series, a little mini-series. You know, we did a longish series on the Holy Spirit, not just the gifts of the Spirit, but on the Holy Spirit himself and his ministry and, and, and the power that brings to us and uh, to our responsibility as Spirit-filled believers what we can expect to be able to do, what we can expect God to do in our life through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then, uh, but, we, but when we talked about the gifts of the Spirit, we talked about the difference between, for example, uh, how every Spirit-filled believer can pray in tongues, but not every Spirit-filled believer should operate in the gift of speaking in tongues in the assembly. Two, at the most three, and always with an interpreter, that sort of thing. Uh, And when we looked at the gifts, we looked at them in the context of the assembly. Church, this is how it looks when we are assembled. And then I started this. Uh, I don't know how many um, messages there will be. I think this is technically part three. But it's called the unassembled life of faith. Meaning, here we are, spirit-filled believers. And we recognize, I made sort of a passing reference to this, I think in one message, and again, in some context, while Pastor Bob was here, that in a very real sense, our lives as believers need to revolve around this, being together. We are going to, tonight, uh, I'm, I'm Chasing rabbits here, and that's fine. If I don't finish this, I won't, I won't stretch it out, okay? You'll get your time back on the other end of this if I, if I have to push it off another week. But tonight, for instance, I, I, I told you that since we are doing it, uh, we'll be assembling at the Lutheran Church. And whoever hosts it, you kind of get a flavor of how they do a worship service. And the, the Lutherans, and this isn't a slam, this isn't a criticism, it's just the way it is. They are much more liturgical much more ordered, much more high church, okay? Uh, But once you understand the meaning behind a lot of these, you know, uh, liturgical moments, you can really appreciate them, especially if it's being led by somebody who sees the spiritual meaning in these things. Again, I think they have a good pastor who's doing that. But one of the things we're going to be doing tonight is reciting the Apostles' Creed, as I grew up doing in the Methodist church. And I like the Apostles' Creed. There's one line in there, where we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now, that's small c, you understand. You're not pledging allegiance to the Roman Catholic, big C church. That word Catholic simply means universal. And it's this common expression for all believers at all times in all places. I have, I will go ahead and recite that tonight because I understand what is meant by that, but I have really come over pretty firmly in this position, that if we're talking about all believers at all times and places, what we're talking about is the family of God, or perhaps even better, the body of Christ. But if you're talking about the church, 
you're talking about local and visible. This is a church. And when you talk about the church, you might be talking more loosely about the body of Christ. But churches are individual and they are local. Uh, Paul, at sometimes he wrote to the church in a town. Sometimes he wrote to the churches in a city. This, so this is a church. So when we say that tonight, I, what I, what, 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 uh, how did I get way off on this? Because we're talking about when we come together. It's not enough to be able to say, not especially in this day and age, and this is what Hebrews chapter 10 says, especially as you see the day draw near. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, right? Consider how to stir one another up toward love and good deeds, be an encouragement to one another. We need to be together. It's not enough to say, are you a member of the church? Yes, I'm a member of the church. I'm a member of the church universal. I'm a member of, of, of the of the family of God. Yes, you're a member of the family of God. Yes, you're a member of the body of Christ. You need to be in a church. You need to be part of a church, an assembly, so we can look at one another, see one another, put up with one another, learn how to walk in love, and uh, preferring one another. This is all part of growing up. You might feel better. You might find it easier to worship God in your own way, in solitude. And absolutely, we should have a devotional life. The prayer closet is highly recommended. But you were never, you cannot make the case scripturally for just being you and Jesus. This is all I need, just me and Jesus. No, you need, we need one another. We have been called, and it's very clearly modeled for us to be doing this together. Amen? So, so, in a, I think once we grasp that, we get more excited about, for instance, meeting on Wednesday nights, all coming together. And yeah, we're assembling at small groups too. But Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, small groups, we ought to be excited about these times of coming together. Uh, but still, even with that, we will spend most of our time as believers unassembled. And we still have instructions. We, there's still things that we need to be working toward, and there's a way that we should live as even unassembled, faith-filled believers. And so uh, I think part two of this was, was talk the talk. When we, talked, we, we got back to the importance of faith's confession and knowing what the Word says so that we can speak the Word. And then, then we're talking about walking the walk uh, where it has more to do with behavior. And the underlying theme here of this, and we'll probably go at least another week, is holiness. That it matters how we live. And if you read the Bible, Old and New Testament, but I'm thinking specifically, you get into the, the epistles of the New Testament, an awful lot, there's doctrine in there, sure, but there's an awful lot of stuff in there that just has to do with how we behave. This is how you should act with your boss. This is how you should act with your wife, with your husband, with your children, with your parents. This is how you should act simply with your brothers and sisters. This is how you should act with the world. There are things you can put up with in the world that you should not put up with in church. Did you know that? Paul made that really clear when he was addressing a sin in the church in Corinth. And uh, he said something about having nothing to do with someone like that. Then he had to write him back and said, I'm not talking about that happening out in the world. You've got to put up with that. They're not under the same 
uh, commandments that we are. They have an, he says, you, you can't avoid that unless you're just out of the world. I'm talking about don't put up with it in the church. You've got to kick that person out. You've got to withhold communion, something, until they get their life right. Because we're here for a purpose. We need to look different. Is there something different about the way we live versus the way the world lives? And the answer to that ought to be easy, right? I mean, there's clearly a difference. And we can see, unfortunately, right now, at this moment, that the connection between uh, Christian values and social values is dissolving. We're elevating now things that we, that we, we used to disparage and vice versa. And what used to be common sense truth claims, things that just everybody knew are now vilified as being narrow, exclusive, and intolerant. So much so, in fact, that even some Christians who are dedicated to towing the line when it comes to the clear word of God find themselves saying things like, I don't necessarily agree with it. I know it sounds outdated, but the Bible does say it, so we kind of have to do it. Or this, I wish the Bible didn't say this, but it does, so. But if we really dig in, we see that the commandments, the statutes, the judgments of the Lord are not only holy, but they are good. They are good for us, objectively good. I'll give you one example. New Testament clearly says, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, the word makes it clear throughout Scripture that there are certain physical privileges, chief among them the conjugal relationship, that are the exclusive province of marriage and the marriage bed. I said something about this not too long ago. As Christians, particularly in a specific political climate, are very quick to jump on sins like homosexuality and point out how clearly anti-biblical they are. And now, with this nonsense of transgenderism and stuff, we'll also frown on adultery because we don't like the cheating aspect, but at least we understand adultery. And we almost completely ignore the sin of simple fornication, sex outside of marriage. But it is sin. As we mature, back up here. When I say we ignore it, I don't mean we defend it. I don't know any solid Bible-believing Christian who's out there saying there's nothing wrong with sex before marriage or outside of marriage. And we're not marching for it, but I think a lot of people think, yeah, practically everybody's doing it, and after all, we're only flesh and blood, and God understands. And, and deep down, not even that deep, I've heard people say, as I referenced earlier, I just wish the Bible didn't say it was wrong. I know the Bible says it wrong, says it's wrong, but I wish it didn't, because man, oh man, you know? But as we mature, then, then we begin to see the wisdom, the goodness of the prohibition, because it then elevates the conjugal relationship to something holy, a sacred thing. And practiced only in the marriage relationship, then we can begin to see how it's like you can't, if you've treated it as a holy thing, then you begin to, can you even imagine? You never want to think 
about the possibility that your spouse ever did it with anybody else. This is the way it's supposed to be. Now, I mentioned a few weeks ago that I was going to get into 2 Peter. Uh, and I'm going to look at a couple passages there before we go to Psalm 119, which I also said I would go to in the second message, but I didn't. Got it? Doesn't matter. You can open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. And again, the point I was making with that was that there are a host of things we're commanded to do, things we're commanded to abstain from, that go against the grain of our flesh, that conflict and combat our, uh, conflict with and combat our appetites. But it, and it is only, and, and we start with simple obedience. Don't really want to, this looks hard. I want to keep doing this, it looks hard to stop. I'm going to do it out of self-discipline, I'm going to do it out of obedience, and then as we grow, we see, aha, this was a good thing. The commandments of the Lord turn out to be right commandments, good commandments, good rules for living. And uh, here we go. Let's, let's look at what uh, Peter has to say about this, or what the Holy Spirit is saying through Peter. And we'll start right at the beginning of this book. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been, have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through Satan and demons." That's not what my translation really says. We give an awful lot of credit to Satan and demons when what we're really fighting is our appetites and our evil desires and simple lust that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, listen to this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, to ver perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure for if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so, an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this is a mouthful and a half. We could just go in those couple of verses, um, what, five through seven, add this to this, add this to this. We could do a series of sermons on those things. I think also we can make it more uh, difficult than it is if we try to build a strict hierarchy, starting at faith and ending at love. I think it's better and certainly more important today to get the big picture, the bird's eye view of this, because I just want you to see that what Peter's saying is don't stop at mere salvation by faith. I'm going to use that phrase, mere salvation, a couple times. Don't get twisted about it. I'll explain it later. 
grow up, get better at being a Christian. Learn, apply, don't quit, and above all, love one another. Don't just be saved. This is what he's saying. Add this, add this, add this. And you look at the result. You go to heaven. That's not what he's saying. Salvation gets you that. What's the result? You're going to be fruitful. If you're satisfied with simply escaping hell, you don't appreciate the fact that sin itself was a prison for you, and you've been cleansed from that sin, freed from that prison, the prison of sin, not the prison of hell. And you look at this, verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. This can't be, especially weighed against all the evidence of every other scripture, this can't be about securing your own salvation by works, right? Make your call and election sure to others. Don't leave room for anybody to doubt that you are a Christian. You cling to that salvation. You make your call and election certain. And verse 11, an abundant entrance into heaven. I'll say this, I've said this before and I'll say it again. When we picture, when, when, when we, uh, picture the uh, entrance into heaven and, and uh, what do we want to hear this? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I don't want you to believe because I, I, I think it's a, a dangerous belief to think that there's an angel or Jesus himself standing at the gates as we all line up either on the, uh, the day that we are on, you know, general resurrection or when we die, that he's just standing there like this. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because I don't think that, that everybody's going to be greeted with that. I think that the well done, thou good and faithful servant is a greeting that is reserved for those who have done well who have lived their lives as we were instructed to live, who have given their things to the things, uh, given their lives to the things that, that Christ himself has commanded us to give our lives to. Now, heaven, I understand. If you can imagine any such thing as the meanest corner in heaven has got to be a million times better than the best place in hell. I get that. But is there such a thing as an entrance into heaven that is not abundant? And yeah, I guess the answer is another question. Is there such a thing as being barely saved? Kind of. Again, I prefer the term merely saved. I find it less offensive, but only a little. What I mean is, the work of salvation is so great. What Jesus did, what was necessary for us to be saved, even merely saved, is so far beyond anything we'd accomplish for ourselves and is such a magnificent picture of the extravagant love of God that in, that, in one sense there's nothing mere about it. Everything that was necessary for our salvation, our deliverance, from the clutches of sin and hell and Satan, was accomplished 100% at the cross by Jesus Christ. We cannot get away from that. A person who is saved at their last breath after a life of sin 
is no less saved than a Christian who served Christ all his or her life, but merely saved. What I mean by that is you got saved and that's all. No growth, no fruit, no service, no treasure in heaven. Are there tears in heaven? There must be because we're told that he will wipe away every tear. And we can imagine there might be a couple reasons that we would be crying in heaven. But I think one of the big ones is going to be not hearing, well done, thou good and faithful servant, but rather hearing, oh, I love you, and I'm glad you're here, but I had so much more planned for you. Now get in here. Let's get back to 2 Peter. We're still in chapter 1, verse 12. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by, way, by, by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. This is beautiful. He's just laying out, well, here's why I'm writing this letter. I'm going to die soon, and I want you guys to have something. I'm just going to write this. this these are the most important things. There's a, there's, I've shared with you things in another letter. I've preached to you. I've shared with you. These are the things that I really want you to focus on, knowing that I'm going to be gone soon. Notice, notice it's not a woe is me. It's just I'm moving. I'm moving out of this tent, uh, going somewhere better. But I need to remind you of these things. And so then goes into this, verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed, as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. He says a couple of important things. One, hey, we're not inventing this religion. We're not making stuff up about this Jesus and telling you things we wish were true. We, and we're not telling you things we heard from somebody else. We were there, man. There were just a couple of us, just a few of us on this mountain with him, physically there, where we saw him transfigured. He wasn't just the son of man. He was the son of, he, he was manifested for a moment as who he has always been, God the son. We heard God's Voice, audible voice saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This was one of the most extraordinary things that happened during the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. The transfiguration. And then he turns right around and says, but now we have a more sure word of prophecy. Glorious as that was, we have the word of God. You can, you can give a, a private interpretation of an experience you had, but no written prophecy, nothing in the Bible is for private interpretation because God knew what he meant when he wrote it. 
as an aside here, I don't know if I've, if I've shared this illustration with you before, but when people, people say, uh, I won't tell you what my company commander used to call those things, uh, little dust particles, you know. Uh, I saw this, uh, people will say, well, the Bible, you know, it's so vague. It might mean, one, might mean one thing to you, might mean something else to somebody else. Uh, there are varieties of meanings. And there's a very simple picture. You ever see this? You've got one person standing here looking at a number six on the floor. And somebody else is standing right over there looking at what? A number nine. See? What number is it? It all depends on where you're standing. It all depends on the, on the direction you're looking at it from. Do you know what's wrong with that illustration? The person who drew it knew what he was drawing. Who's to determine whether it's a six or a nine? The person who put it there. Now you can say, you can pull a random isolated verse out of the Bible and say it means this, but you have to go back and see what did the author mean? What did God mean? It's not for your private interpretation. Holy men of God were moved by the Spirit to write these things down. And nine times out of ten, probably 99 times out of 100, it's not as difficult as we've been led to believe. Just when so next time somebody says, ah, why bother reading the Bible? It's full of contradictions. Say, name two, name three, name one. Most of them are not going to be able to name one. They've just heard it enough, and they just, they're just regurgitating what they've heard. So he gives us his purpose for writing. He talks about the transfiguration and then talks about how we have a more sure word of prophecy. What Peter, uh, this, was, this was some, well, I think, I'm not saying it was the most important thing he said, but the part that really grabbed me about what Pastor Bob shared with us last week was when he was talking about how Joseph and Mary came to the temple for the Jesus' circumcision because of what the law said, what the word said, what the law said. Three times it mentions the word, and then uh, Simeon was there because he was led by the Spirit. By the Sp it mentions the Spirit three times. Three times by the word, three times by the Spirit. They ended up in the same place, how the word and the Spirit always agree. The word is more certain than our experiences. It's more valuable. It's more important. We will continue in this vein for another week. I'm not wrapping up yet, don't worry. Uh, but I, before, we, uh, before I go any further down that track, I want to look at something. I'm going to take a, kind of a longish look at Psalm 119. Uh, you can turn there if you want. We're going to start at the beginning. We're not going to read the whole thing. But there are 22 stanzas, and we're going to read something out of each one of them. I don't know if you know this. You probably do if you've, if you've read, ever read an introduction to Psalms or maybe even a, just a brief commentary on Psalm 119. It's a very clever uh, psalm. It's an acrostic. In the original Hebrew, uh, there, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. We've got one uh, uh, couplet, or sorry, one stanza consisting of eight couplets per stanza for every letter in alphabetical order in the Hebrew alphabet. So it doesn't look like that in English. Uh, but if you're reading this in Hebrew, every couplet in each stanza would start with, if, for instance, the letter A in the first one, Aleph. And what I want to do, and it's a beautiful, beautiful psalm to read through. It's the longest psalm in the Bible. But I want to look at what it says here. We're going to look at each stanza just long enough to see how long it takes to mention the word. And we're looking for words like word, 
judgment, statute, commandment, precept, law. Did I say law already? Anyway, let's start the, in the, where I'm going to read one through eight. I'm going to read the whole first stanza. Psalm 119.1, blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. It's just jam-packed, isn't it? Second one, beginning in verse 9. This is the Beth part. How long, or sorry, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 17, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Verse 25, my soul clings to dust, to the dust. Revive me according to your word. I have declared my ways and you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Verse 33, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding and I shall keep your law. Verse 41, let your mercies come also to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. So shall I have an answer from him. For him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. Verse 49, remember the word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. This is my comfort and my affliction, for your word has given me life. Verse 57, you are my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep your words. I entreated your favor, favor with my whole heart. Be merciful to me according to your word. Verse 65, you have dealt with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. We're getting there. Verse 73, your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give, me. give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in your word. Verse 81, my soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. My eyes fail from searching your word, saying, when will you comfort me? For I become like a wineskin in smoke, yet I do not forget your statutes. Verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies. Verse 105, your word is a lamp, unto my, lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments. 113, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Uh, 121, I have done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Be a surety for your servant for good. Do not let the proud oppress me. My, my eyes fail from seeking your salvation and your righteous word. Deal with your servant according to your mercy and teach me your statutes. 129, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. 
Verse 137, righteous are you, Lord, and upright are your judgments. Your testimonies, which you have commanded, are righteous and very faithful. Verse 145, I cry out with my whole heart, hear me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. I cry out to you, save me, and I will keep your testimonies. Verse 153, consider my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my case and redeem me, revive me according to your word. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. I rejoice at your word as one who finds a great treasure. And finally, 169, let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver deliver me according to your word. Now, that was a lot. Thank you for sticking with me, reading along, listening. But... Do you get the message? (laughs) You read through this psalm. This is my suggested application. We talked a couple weeks ago, and we talk often, about the importance of confessing, speaking faith-filled words. Do you believe there is power in your words? Now, there's power in your words, whether they're attached to some great truth or not. But when you are attaching your words, when you are making your words God's words, or vice versa, taking God's word and making it, you speak it out, and you speak it out in faith, there is power to change your life, to change others' lives, to change your circumstances, and change a lot. But that's what it means to confess, to agree with what God has said. Now, my suggestion is to read through Psalm 119 and make it a confession. So, well, I really don't love the commandments of the Lord. Say that you do. And act like you do. This is something C.S. Lewis said about loving your neighbor and even forgiving your neighbor. He says people rack their brains. How do I love somebody that I don't love? I'm commanded to love. God's telling me to feel a certain way. And Lewis says he's not telling you to feel a certain way. He's telling you to act a certain way. So the way to figure it out is, if I really loved this person as I understand love, how would I treat them? That's how you treat them. How do I know I've really forgiven somebody? Ask yourself, how would I act if I had forgiven them and act that way? That's the important thing. So you start saying that you love the things that are hard that God commands you to do. Stop saying, I can't stand to read the Bible. I've heard this from a hundred kids over the years. I just hate reading. I just hate reading. I don't read. I don't read anything. I don't read. Stop saying that. Because we're commanded to read. We're commanded to study. Oh, I love the law. I love it. I love it. I'm going to enjoy it. But right now I'm committed to it. And I find it easier all the time. Start saying it. And you read through those. Look at how many. And we just, all we did was read until it said something about it. It says all through those stanzas, all through that psalm. So then we stop saying things like, I know why the Bible bothers you. I know it bothers you that the Bible says this. Bothers me too. But I'm a Christian so I have to believe it. Well, I guess that's better than nothing. But I would rather be saying, final scripture, Psalm 119, 
sorry, Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. That's not talking, I don't believe, about salvation. It's talking about changing the way you think about things, the things that you are attached to, your devotion, and your, uh, uh, your passions. The law of the Lord, the word of God, we can, we can say, is so powerful and so good that it will change what you think about the world and about any particular issue. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Wow. Stand up with me. Praise and worship team, you can make your way up here. In keeping them there is great reward. We will talk a little bit, I think you get this, that we're not talking about keeping the whole ceremonial law of the old covenant, but that Jesus made, did give us commandments. Jesus' main mission was to do what he did. He died on the cross and rose again and ascended into heaven, making a way for us to be saved. But he also told us that as we go out and fulfill the Great Commission, which it's that ultimately, what part did we play in the Great Commission that's going to secure our abundant entrance into heaven? All right? But he did tell them, uh, teach them to obey all that I have taught you, all that I have commanded you. There's still, obedience is a very, very big part of the Christian life. We've got to be willing to do that, even if it's tough to start out with. But, first things first, are you at least merely saved? This whole thing in 2 Peter starts out seemingly pretty, with quite a challenge. But you notice at the beginning, we didn't dwell on it, I didn't have time this morning, or I didn't want to take the time this morning, that what he was saying was, everything we need to be pleasing to God, everything we need to make our calling and election election sure, everything we need to prepare the way for an abundant entrance into heaven, where does it come from? He has given it to us. What's he given to us? Everything that pertains to life and godliness. What has he done by his finished work, by his blood, by the very act of making us able to be cleansed? He has made us not, I get, I get irked. I know genuine people, genuine believers, I love them, I know they love God, but their view of being a Christian is, I am an irredeemable sinner, I am nothing but rot, I am nothing but a worm, I am nothing but a sinner saved by grace. I'm like, if you're saved by grace, you're not a sinner anymore in God's eyes. What are you? How can you be a worm, a sinner, and be a partaker of the divine nature of God? That's a big thing to say. The divine nature of God? You're a partaker of that? That's what it says. (coughs) 
All things pertaining to life and godliness are available to us. Now, they don't. We don't automatically, the moment we receive salvation, we don't automatically turn and think and act 100% godly. But we need to recognize that this is what we're aiming for. And we should be more godly today than we were last week, last year. Why? We should, because we should, it was simple faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ that got us saved. But you add to that faith what? Diligence, knowledge, virtue, perseverance, self-control, brotherly kindness, love. Getting better and better and better at being Christians because as we do that, we more fully and effectively live the gospel and preach the gospel. It starts with what? The finished work of Jesus Christ. Who He's made, he's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Who has he given that to? Those who have been saved. Those who have already received as payment for their sins the finished work of Jesus Christ. Those who have been born again. The terminology doesn't matter. Have you personally, I'm not talking about as part of a confirmation class. I'm not talking about as part of a baptism ceremony. Have you personally confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Words of our mouth are important. Romans 10, 9. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I'm going to say a short prayer here, and then I'm going to invite you to come forward and let me pray with you. I don't do, I'm not going to do the every head bowed, every eye closed, slip a hand up in secret. Everybody in here, vast majority, perhaps all of you, have already made that decision. But if you haven't, Everybody in here is going to rejoice the moment you do. So don't be ashamed. Don't cut yourself off from salvation. Don't cut yourself off from heaven out of self-consciousness or pride. And if you need to come back and give your heart back to Jesus, like I gave him my heart when I was 10 years old, haven't really walked with him. Why don't you, maybe you took your heart back. Maybe you need to come and give it back to him. I'd be, I'll be glad to pray with you for, for either one of those things. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word, and thank you for making your power and your life and everything we need for, for life and godliness so abundantly available to us through your Holy Spirit. Father, it's my prayer right now, and I believe it's a prayer of every believer in this room, that if there is an unbeliever in this room, there is somebody who has not yet trusted you and your completed work for their salvation, that they would be convicted, that they would be convinced of their need to do it now, that they would see the cross in a new way, they would understand that the death Jesus died was for them and that they would be eager, that they would have an appetite for salvation, and that you would grant them the boldness to come and receive that free gift today in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Come and let me pray with you. Go ahead and uh, take us home, praise and worship team. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.